So let's pray. Father, we're going to need you. We pray for help to learn the lesson you want to teach us here today. Open our ears, open our hearts, help us to to see Jesus, and help us to see the way you take care of your people. Lord, each one of us are a friend to somebody. You've called us into relationship, and that means necessarily that we counsel. We talk to one another, and we certainly talk to one another about you. And so we pray for help that we would speak from your word and about your goodness and glory. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why, why would God preserve for us the counsel of a friend who's off base? That is a great question. The entire chapter is Bildad speaking. And if you turn later, and we'll get to there eventually, Job chapter 42, it says there that uh, uh, God spoke to the counselors that came around Job to help him and told them that they should repent because the words that they were using to talk about him were insufficient and unhelpful words. And so here we have an entire chapter of insufficient and unhelpful words about God. What are we going to learn from that? Well, I think there's three reasons why God preserves these words for you and me. And I just jotted them down as I was thinking through this week. The first reason is this, to teach us to discern his voice. You're, you're going to have to tune your ears into what God is saying in a sea of people that are telling you stuff. And so how is it that you and I are going to uh, tune into what God's saying and he wants us to see here that this is not something new. That's exactly what Job was having to do. He was having to have his friends come alongside him and come up to him and give him advice about what he should do next. And he was going to have to discern, okay, what is of God and what is not of God in this situation? Ironically, or, or fittingly maybe I should say, Even while he was in his suffering, he had to have his ears up to know whether what the the friend was saying was right or not. And you will too. You'll be a suffering servant, and you're going to have to have your ears up to know that when that counsel comes, some of it should be left and some of it should be taken. So one of the reasons we have Bildad's words here is to teach us to discern his voice. Second reason is to increase our dependence on him. Because not only will you have some bad counselors, you're going to have multiple counselors. And so you're going to get all sorts of advice coming your way, all sorts of reads on the situation, misreads on background stuff, and misreads on what the doctor said, and misreads on your motives, and not sure about the situation fully, but they're going to speak into it, and there's going to be six and seven and ten voices speaking into your life. Here's what I think you should do next. And you and I are not only going to have to discern his voice, we're going to have to depend on the Lord. Lord, help me in the midst of this situation. Here's the third reason I think he includes this bad advice from a well-meaning friend. It's to warn us. You've given some lousy advice in your life. I know that because I am the first and best example of the, the person who has given lousy advice in his life. Lousy advice. You thought you read the situation appropriately. You 
thought, you, you really discerned what to do next. You offered the advice, and days or weeks or months later, you looked at the situation and went, man, what I told that person to do in that situation, what, what I brought to them in that situation, that was so unbelievably unhelpful, I can't even believe it that, I, that those words came out of my mouth. And you'll be put in that situation from time to time where you're the bad advice giver. And this gives us the opportunity to look at Bildad and say, what did he do poorly? What was his intent? What did he do well, if anything? Because we've got to be able to take that away. But to really warn counselors, hey, look, don't be like this, okay? Here's one more thing I want to say before we jump into the message. This is all by way of introduction. Job is now in a moment in his life where he is suffering greatly. And in that moment, his friends come to him with some lousy counsel. And I want you to see two things. Number one, he did not tell his friends, there's the door. He didn't tell them to go away. He didn't tell them all the ways they were wrong. Now, he does argue with them, and he makes his points, okay? But he, he remains in relationship with these counselors who are adding trouble to his trouble. They are compounding and making the situation worse, and Job is in a situation where he needs to listen to what they're saying. And so, but Job didn't wait until his suffering grew great to try to figure out what it is that he believed about the Lord. He didn't wait until his suffering was great, until he became dependent on the Lord. He did all of those things in days of incredible sunshine in his life. So here's what I think we also need to see, that the book of Job is really helpful for us to see that, that comfort and ease and wealth in our life is not always the blessing of God. And the absence of that or the presence of suffering in our life is not always the judgment of God. And so in Job's beautiful, sunshiny days, he didn't sit back and go, you know, I'm expecting this is the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. If I just keep walking with God, he's going to keep blessing me. He didn't do that. And we have in chapter 1 record in his beautiful days of great things happening around him, he was at the sacrifice he was, he was bringing his sacrifice to the Lord. He was praying for his kids that they would walk with the Lord. He was, he was faithful in his days of seeming blessing so that when he came to the pit, he wasn't now trying to work out, well, now what, what's happening here? What do I believe about God? Am I dependent on God? Listen, the pit, the day of suffering, is a lousy day to ask tons of theological questions. It's a bad day to start that conversation because you're going to be insecure and you're not going to be sure what's going on and you're going to want God to, to uh, bless you and your definition of blessing will be the absence of the pain. And that is a hard place to be when you're thinking the next thing God is supposed to do is relieve me of my suffering because I'm this, this righteous person. That's not necessarily what God's going to do. And so... See what's happening here is that Job is the friend gone through the darkest day of his life and in the darkest day of his life in the pit, his friends come, and here's why they came, to sympathize with him and to bring him comfort. That was supposed to be their role. You're going to see that they don't hold to that role very well. 
They were literally coming after a funeral to pay their respects and to comfort him. And yet they are just full of this advice. This is what I think. This is what I think you should do. And Job needed to be able to endure bad counsel with grace and wisdom while he preached to himself, while he believed what was true about God, even while his friends brought this counsel. So all of that, to set this up, there is going to be a day where your friends come or where you are the friend that comes to make sense of life and living. And so we're going to learn, again, what Bildad did well and what Bildad didn't do so well. But let me close out the introduction by saying, don't wait. Don't wait till the pit comes. Don't wait till you find yourself suffering to start thinking, now, I wonder how good God is. I wonder if, if God is good. I wonder if God will always simply be blessing my life and making it sunshine and roses. I wonder if that's, you know, really what God's all about. Okay, Job didn't do any of that stuff. He prepared in the day of blessing for the day of suffering. And we should too. And so we get into the, the, the meat of, of Job chapter 8 here. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, okay? Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things and, and the words of your mouth be a, a great wind? We in Wisconsin are a hearty bunch, are we not? And so we just came uh, out of this moment where uh, if it's negative 10 degrees, you and I go outside with, with just one coat on. And we say to one another, well, you know, the, the bree- it's not too windy. It's not that bad because it's not that windy out there, you know. But when the great wind comes, negative 10 feels like negative 30, right? And so Job's friend comes, Bildad comes and says, your words are your mouth, they're, they're making a bad situation worse. They're making negative 10 feel like negative 30. The words of your mouth are just a great wind, Job. How long are you going to keep talking? Incidentally, this whole text, Job chapter 8, the friend is addressing the question, how long? How long? Because if you look at Job's chapter 6 and 7, Job is focused on two things. How long? And I need a friend to come and offer me compassion. Those are the two things he's been talking about with his friend. How long is this going to last? And I need some compassion here. Help me out. Okay? So, here we have Bildad answering the question. This is what he's seeking to do. How long? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. And we see in verses from verses 1 through 4, because every friend is eventually going to play the role of counselor, including you, every friend is eventually going to play the role of counselor, but be reluctant in your rebuking. And we learned from the opposite of what Bildad does. Bildad is not reluctant in his rebuking. He is aggressive in his rebuking. And he says two important things. Job, if you're suffering here, it's because there's something wrong with you. You've sinned. You have somehow ticked off the Almighty. You have some place in your life where you've not been faithful to God. And the the theology of Bildad is God punishes the wicked and God lifts up the righteous. You are in a place of punishment, so you must be the wicked. 
So that, that's his mindset going in. And he says some harsh things. Have you, have you ever been the counselor who went in and, and you went in for the purpose of sympathy and you went in for the purpose of comfort and compassion and your words actually added problems and strife and trouble to the situation. It's exactly what's going on here. You see in verse 4? I, can't, I can barely believe verse 4 is in the Bible. Because a month after-ish, okay, so I don't know a month for sure. I do know that it's, it's been, some time has passed since Job has lost everything, including his 20 children, his 10 children and their spouses. He's lost everything. And his friend comes and says to them, well, if your children are dead, it's their fault. That's brutal. Quite frankly, it's not right. It's not at all what God says. But here, this well-meaning, quote-unquote, special friend of God, he's speaking for God. He's speaking to Job. He's speaking harshly. He's speaking quickly. And by quickly, I mean this. Uh, He's rehearsed what he wants to say. He's been sitting in the quiet for seven days thinking, now what am I going to say to this guy? And he's more concerned with what he wants to say than what Job needs. And it's so important for you to understand what your friend needs in the situation. Your friend needs compassion. That's what Job's been asking for. Would you come alongside me and feed my soul, the person for who I am, not just just information for my mind, but but comfort and help for my my life. I need you, friends, to be close to me in this moment. And here his friend has been thinking through all of the stuff he wants to say to Job, and that's exactly where he goes. He goes to this rebuke, and he says to to, to Job, look, stop talking. You're taking negative 10 and making it feel like negative 30. You're to blame here. And the, this situation, the length of the situation, is only going to continue the longer you keep talking. And until you admit, Job, that you're in the wrong, that you're the sinner, that there's some secret sin that none of us can see here, that you must be doing when no one's looking, because otherwise God wouldn't be taking it out on you, in essence. Until you admit that, your trial is going to continue. And so he rebukes his friend. He asks this question, does God pervert? Does he pervert justice? Does he twist it? Does he turn it? Does he turn justice? Because he assumes that Job is receiving justice. Now, here's the answer to that question. God does not pervert justice. He doesn't. And right next to it, the exa- this phrase, suffering is not a perversion justice. You will suffer. I will suffer in this world. It is appointed unto man once to die. We will die. The the Newer Testament says to you and me very clearly that that we're going to suffer in this world. Acts 9, 6, I will show Paul, God says this, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering in this world is, is real. And when it comes to light, the sufferer naturally starts asking the question, has God left me? Has he abandoned me? Am I all alone in this world? That's the, the, one of the themes of the book of Job. Has God left me? Now, why do believers suffer more seemingly 
than the people around us. You see there? Because it says, uh, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against them, he, he God, has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. And, and we're, again, we're grappling with these important questions, okay? So Bildad presumes that Job's children have died as a result of their own sin. He presumes the role of saying that to Job in the midst of his pit. And so we, let, let's learn the lesson from this bad counselor, okay? I'm going to give us two what I think are practical points for you as a friend to, to glean from Bildad's willingness to be harsh and aggressive uh, with, with his uh, rebuking, okay? Here they are. Number one, focus on discipleship. Focus on dependence on the Lord in the day when you are not suffering. Okay, don't, don't focus on amassing wealth. Don't focus on your personal comfort. Don't focus on uh, expecting that, that you deserve some kind of blessing, right? We are called to to surrender our lives, and we surrender our lives in the good days to the Lord by going after him in his word, by learning of his ways, by not assuming his, his uh, blessing tomorrow. And so in your days of light, learn, learn of the ways of the Lord. Secondly, speak of what you know of God. Bildad presumed Bildad thought he knew stuff that God would do in the future. Can I just tell you, you don't know what God's going to do in the future. You have no idea. I don't know what God's going to do in the future. So when we come alongside a hurting friend and start talking about, oh, this is what God's going to do in the future, and we, we state it with certainty. One of the things that, that the counselors are called on the carpet for in Job 42 is God says, the way you talked about me, you know what? I, God has a, a, a bright, beautiful, mysterious, unbelievably complex plan that he's working out in this world. And in Job 38, he, he says, look, you're darkening this whole thing with your words. Who darkens my counsel with this ridiculous uh, waxing eloquent about my intentions? Well, Bildad does. That's who. Bildad thinks he knows the future and knows what God's going to do, and he doesn't. And can I just tell you, friend, you don't know. You know that doesn't mean that God's unknowable. It just means you don't know what he's going to do next. And, and you and I, part of suffering is us getting comfortable with the fact that we don't know what God is going to do next. So speak of what you do know of God. In your suffering, God is good. God is faithful. God does provide support. God hasn't abandoned us. We're going to look at that as we go, as we go through. Secondly, you see in these next couple of verses from uh, verse 5 down through verse 7, we see that because every friend will eventually play the role of counselor, you should be humble in your advice giving. Be humble in your advice giving. When you are placed in the role, when I am placed in the role of counselor, it is easy to get a little bit puffed up. Like, okay. They're coming to me. I'm having this opportunity. I'm not the one who's in the trouble. I'm not the one who needs the, the advice here. I, I'm the one that's providing some insight 
And it's easy for us to start waxing eloquent and get puffed up with our philosophical understanding and start, and start going places that really, there's no, you have no business going, and I have no business going. Again, we just talked about the fact we don't always know. In fact, we often don't know what God is doing. So, so we sang in the first service, I will not boast of anything but Jesus Christ. And so when we boast, we don't boast of what we know about or what we think God will do in the future. Even knowledge of God can puff us up. We boast about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. So Bildad comes upon Job. He's in the pit, and he's been rehearsing in his mind, and here's what I think you should do, Job. You're in the pit. Here's three things you need to do. More effort, more effort, more effort. Job's saying, Lord, I need some compassion. I need you to come and help me here. And, and he says, look at verse uh, 5. If you will seek God. It's evident to me, Job, by your pit, you haven't been seeking God. I tell you what, nothing hurts more when you are in a place of brokenness than for somebody to come in and say, one of the things that I see in your life is you really haven't been seeking God. The, the word there means to enter into a state. So we're, Job, you should enter into a state, a season of searching for God. In, in essence, you should try a little harder to encounter God than you've been trying, because it's evident what you've been doing to this point hasn't been working so well. He prescribes more work than that, though. You're going to have to plead with God in fact, he says, plead with the Almighty for mercy. We're reminded all the time that in these middle chapters in Job, we have page after page after page of bad advice from friends. And those friends never use the covenant personal name for God. In other words, they're kind of one step removed from knowing who God really is. So they talk about his might, or they talk about his, his, his power. In our culture today, you're going to have people who come into your life and they're going to mainly talk about his grace. They're going to mainly talk about his love. And you've got to be real careful when somebody comes into your life and says, now here's the, the characteristic of God I want to emphasize. And I know that I'm not emphasizing these other characteristics of God. And that's what Bildad does when he says the Almighty. Okay? And so he comes in and he says, look, you're going to have to plead with him for mercy. Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You don't have to plead for it. It says uh, his mercies never come to an end. You don't have to enter into a season of searching for it. If you are in Christ and walking after him and, and, and seeking his face, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And Bildad says, look, you're going to have to seek. You're going to have to plead with him. And here's a couple more things that you're going to need to do. If you, the internal position of you, who you are as a person, if you are pure, that is morally clean, clean up your mor morality, Job. If you're clean enough... And if you are upright enough, so he's prescribing more effort. Now let's take a, take a break here and put a little parenthesis on this. Uh, Job chapter 1 starts with God saying, Job, 
is blameless and upright. His counselor comes and say, you're not upright enough. You ever had that happen to you? You're in a situation where you are seeking the Lord and you long to see his favor and help in a situation and a friend who, who is an inadvertent or sometimes reluctant or unwilling or sometimes very willing as, as Bildad is here comes and in your very area of strength challenges you and says that's a weakness in your life. I don't see it. You've been a, a, a blustery wind. You've been defending yourself and talking about how strong you are and trying to show your friends how strong you are in these areas. I think that's your greatest weakness. You're not upright enough. So you're going to have to try harder and praise God that he has already talked about Job in such a way. Now listen, Job doesn't know God's opinion of him. We're not told that he does. God's opinion of Job is for the author of the book. It's for you and me. We get, we get behind-the-scenes information in this book that Job never gets. He doesn't know what's going on, that, that God has said one of the reasons why Job is going to suffer is to put the greatness and glory of God on display for everyone to see. That's why he's suffering. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that, that Satan thinks that Job is going to define all of his life he, Satan thinks that if, if God removes the blessing and the money and the comfort and the cushiness and the friendship and the fun and the sunshine, if God removes that, Job will surely walk away. Surely that's the reason why. And Job's friends think that too. And the whole purpose of this suffering, which Job never finds out about, is to show Satan and to show you that's not why Job was serving the Lord. He was serving the Lord because he was enough. He's serving the Lord because he's sufficient. He was serving the Lord because, of his, because he had a faith and trust in him. He's serving the Lord because he's righteous, because uh, he's good. And so his friend comes and says, you've got to get a little bit more pure and a little bit more upright, where God has pronounced favor and not needing more effort. So Bildad is trying to say, well, here's how long this is going to last. This is going to keep going until you seek enough, until you plead enough, until you are pure enough, until you are upright enough. And when you plead and seek and are pure and upright enough, that will be the end of your trial. He says it with confidence. This is what God's doing. Can I just tell you, that's not at all what God was doing. No part of that is what God was doing. And so Bildad's announcement about what should happen next, about how long this was going to take, is just wrong. Can I just tell you, I don't know. We, we have done other sermons, and I think there are other places we can turn to answer the question, why do we suffer so much in this world? Okay? I'm not going to try to answer that right now. There are many, many, many different reasons. But here's something I can tell you. I don't know how long your suffering will last. Don't know. For some of you, you are in a paragraph of suffering. You're on sentence four, and maybe there's eight sentences in the paragraph. It's a blip. Some of you are in the midst of a novel. 
on suffering. For some of you, it's war and peace. And it's permanent. It's going to be for the rest of your life. There's no end in sight. And for a counselor to come and say, these work a little bit harder, do these three things, or, or jump through these hoops that I see, then your suffering will come to an end. That's ridiculous. So here's the, here's the application point for good Christian friends. Say this with me, not out loud, but in your heart. Here's a good thing to say if you're called to the side of a friend who's suffering. How long? Here's three words I think you should get used to saying. I don't know. doesn't mean God's unknowable. It doesn't mean God is arbitrary. It doesn't mean he's random. It means God is mysterious and bigger than you and bigger than me. He's doing something greater with your suffering than we could ever figure out. And here's second point of, of encouragement for the friend. Go into your friendships with this mindset that faithfulness to God in the pit is better than life. Faithfulness to God in suffering is better than taking God for granted in the sunshine. And so God has us in a place that it's good when he has us in a place of suffering, but he's teaching us in the place of suffering. By the way, this is the whole point of the book of Job, I believe. He's teaching us in the, in the midst of the suffering that we are not alone, that he is the friend that stays close to us while we suffer. That he keeps us closer than ever. We're going to see at the end here that Job gets something better than an answer for how long. He gets something better than an answer for uh, what are you doing here, Lord? Why? The why question will often not be answered. And it's never answered in the book of Job for Job. It's answered for you and me. We have scriptures. Thirdly, because every friend will eventually play the role of counselor... Let God's word alone make you wise. And I say, well, why, why do you say that? Because in verses 8 down through 19, Bildad is unpacking and saying, look, here's the thing. We're, we're in this world briefly. We don't have enough time to amass information. We're not smart enough to figure this out. And so let's look back at the previous generation and hear some of the words that they have spoken and let's base some of our understanding about what to do next based on the the fathers and the traditions. And if you'll remember, Eliphaz based his authority on like this spiritual experience that he had had with God. He had a vision. So that was his source of authority. And here, now we've got Bildad and he's placing his sense of, of emphasis on tradition. This is what we've learned from the fathers. Can I just encourage you for a moment? Look, if you look at Job and what he has gone through, he is in the pit and suffering, and he's holding on with all that he is to his faith in God. In spite of the fact, in spite of the fact, he is blameless and upright. His suffering is not decreasing, it's increasing you keep in mind, he's got these sores all over his body, and he does not know the answer to the question, is this it for me? The children are gone. The money is gone. I'm in a broken relationship with my wife, who's just said some harsh words to me. My friends are here because I'm sick, 
and I don't know the answer. Is this a sickness leading to death? I don't know. I don't know. And yet, in that place, without Israel's history, without the promises made to Israel, without a written record of God's actions, Job is extremely early, right? So he doesn't have written word. He does not have covenant community. He doesn't have priests. He doesn't have prophets. He doesn't have people guarding the covenant. He doesn't have the the synagogue. He doesn't have a weekly connection with other believers. He doesn't have an annual calendar whereby he makes a trip to worship the Lord. He doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have rites, traditions, revealed knowledge. He doesn't have none of that. And his problems are increasing. Yet, he remains faithful. Can we just stop for a minute? What about you? Your trouble. Your suffering. You have word of God. Now, I believe that Job had the Holy Spirit active in his life. All Old Testament believers had the Holy Spirit active in their life. That's how they came to faith, right? Uh, and so the, the Holy Spirit is active in a special way in the New Testament, but he was active in the Old Testament, right? We, and, and I could give you examples of that, but here, my point is this. My point is this. We have so many resources available to us that Job did not. We should be so encouraged by the fact that he endured far more suffering than we ever will. He endured it faithfully, without resources, and we are in a place where God has said, look, you endure what I've called you to endure in your place of suffering, in your pit. The word of God is available to you, and the, the, the realities of the authority of God's word is available to you. And so many times we take the, uh, uh, the authority of God's word and we exchange it for a Christianized, psychological, pop, bumper sticker theology. We do that often, don't we? And, and again, that's what Bildad's doing here. You know, don't worry about the Word of God. Let's look back to the fathers who recently taught us some stuff. And some, sometimes I think we take great delight in taking all of God's Word and we say, well, I'm not only not going to devote myself to it in my day of sunshine, but in my day of darkness, I'm just going to try to hang on to some nice Christianisms that will get me through. That's what Bildad does. A couple of examples of some stuff that sometimes we embrace. I went and looked. If you ever want to have a great Google search, uh, Google search on bad Christian bumper stickers. That's helpful. That's helpful. There are a lot of different bumper stickers that are unhelpful. And I saw many pictures of them this week. But here's, here's a phrase that we sometimes turn to. It's not one for counseling, but it, it, it's one that, um, that I think we turn to. Uh, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. That's not in the Bible. And it doesn't reflect biblical teaching either. Not at all. Uh, it reflects, uh, sh- should we love people? Yes, 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 we should. But there is no preaching the gospel. The word gospel means good news. There is no good news without news, without words. 
None. And so, will our loving action open the door to say the gospel? Yes, yes. But preaching the gospel is not giving your neighbor bread. And it's not shoveling their walk. That opens the door for you to use words. That's what the Bible says. So, let's not be the kinds of people who hear these phrases and they're like, yeah, that, that's good. Here's another one that we sometimes say. God will not give you more than you can handle. Oh, that's not in the Bible, and it's not a biblical concept. God's going to give you more than you can handle all the time so that you don't depend on you today, so that you depend on Him today for the grace that only comes from Him, so that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're not looking for the next thing you should do, the next way you should plead, or the next way that you should seek, or the next way that you should be upright You're not looking for that. You're looking for his mercy that's new tomorrow morning. Because you have come to depend on the fact that today is going to stretch you beyond what you can handle. You can't do it without the grace of God showing up in your life. And you become so passionate for God because you found that the, the energy and the strength that you have to get through the day is insufficient. And so let's make sure that whatever we say in counseling situations doesn't come from sort of a, well, you know, let go and let God uh, kind of mentality. And instead, we, we go to God's word, and if it lines up exactly with God's word, we can say it. We can say it with confidence. Now, that doesn't mean we don't look for principles all over the place. Paul, in the Newer Testament, knew the poetry of the day and knew the thoughts and the philosophies of the day so he could go into Mars Hill and say, well, you know what? You, you've got some cool stuff you say, but the stuff that you say, if there's a principle in it, may, maybe this unknown God, it, I'll make him known to you, right? So we can use some of the inappropriate philosophy of the day to show that it points back to Scripture, but let's not boil down scripture to five dime store bumper stickers that we can throw in our car and then move on. Life is way, way more complex than that. Some advice for counselors. Do not. Some advice for Christian friends. Practical application. Do not offer repackaged, pragmatic, this work for me, unprayed for, close enough counsel that could be considered true if we nuance it enough. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Go to the Word. Let the Word of God be your authority. Let the Word of God be what carries you through your day of sunshine and prepares you for your pit. Do not offer repackaged advice. Instead, let your wisdom be God's wisdom from above, otherworldly, not focused on just cause and effect, but the greatness of God and His ways. Life in this world will include suffering, and the presence of suffering is not the absence of God's justice. God calls those who love him to suffer. We look to the mission field, and we look to the way that people are being put to death all day long around the world for standing for Jesus Christ. We will expect there's going to be suffering as we follow after the Lord. But no matter how long our suffering lasts, eternity, eternity is forever. Well, quickly, uh, Bildad has thrown three pictures out there, and they are pictures that he gleaned from the fathers. And he says, look, Job, you're like a papyrus plant. You're, you, you, 
if you don't flourish, this is verses 11 through 13, you're not flourishing, so that must mean that you're not tied into God's word. If you want to, you get tied into God's word, you'll flourish. He says, you're like a spider's web in verses 14 and 15. You're a godless person, and your hope is really flimsy, but you're like a person who thinks that the spider web is going to be a sufficient house for them, and when you go to trust it, and when you go to get protection from it, and when you go to actually live there, you look ridiculous because the spider web breaks the second you touch it. Your hope is flimsy. He says, you're like a plant, Job, in verses 16 through 19. You're like a plant with shallow roots. And you know what happens? For a while, it looks like it's flourishing if there's enough rain. But what happens is that quickly gets moved out of the way because there's no root system to it. And then it gets replaced with all these other things that grow there. And nobody cares. They're gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. That's what you are, Job. You're insignificant. And good Christian friends learn not to speak from the uh, traditions of our fathers as if they are authoritative. Scriptures are authoritative. Lastly, because every friend will eventually play the role of counselor. Be God-centered in your confidence. Be God-centered in your confidence. Bildad is confident in a general Christianized optimism. Things are going to work out. Keep it going. Keep a stiff upper lip. As you try harder, God will see that you're trying harder. Just keep trying harder, and things are going to work out. But God, uh, but be careful, be careful, counselor, that, that we don't kind of uh, move down and, and, and spiral down to this point of, of just Christian optimism. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man. Can we just stop there? God has already made it, we've already stated this, God's already made his judgment on Job. He is a blameless man. It's Bildad who gets called on the carpet. But could we take a moment and look ahead? We think about how Jesus is the blameless man that we need him to be. And you say, wait a second, this is so old. Job's not looking to Jesus. Yeah, he's looking to Jesus. Job's looking to Jesus. Do you know that there was oral tradition before we had this written down? I'm I have strong confidence that the oral tradition that we see, in, we see written in G- Genesis 3.15, God will destroy the evil one and he will provide one who will crush his head. I'm confident that Job knew of that, of that promise. That's not just like an optimist, like I hope he knew. Uh, we're going to find in Job chapter 19 that Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. Well, how could he know that? God told Adam, and Adam told Seth, and etc., etc., etc. So the promise that God would eventually set things right, Job was holding on with all that he had for that. So uh, let verse 20, this concept of God not rejecting a blameless man, not only make you esteem what Job did, let it, let it set your eyes forward on the cross of Jesus Christ, where he paid the blameless man paid for the sin debt of the whole world, all who would trust him. And God did not reject that, but accepted him and accepted his sacrifice. He will not fill your mouth, or he will yet fill your mouth with laughter. And we come to verse 22. And those who hate you will be clothed with shame. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Bildad, with bad counsel, 
shows himself to be one who hates Job. Comes as a friend speaking in the name of God, but offers terrible counsel. And look at verse 22. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame. I'll turn over there. You don't have to. Job 42, 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz and Bildad, my anger burns against you. And against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Back to chapter 8, verse 22. Clothed with shame. The friend who doesn't know God's word and spouts off about what he thinks he knows will eventually be clothed with shame. And here Bildad announces his own shame as the enemy of Job. Let's wrap it up. Two quick principles. There are, this is for friends who are asking the question, how do I avoid just a blind optimism but, but hold to a true faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of the pit? There are many reasons for suffering which glorify God. We don't know them all. This passage is not intending to show them all, but there are many reasons for suffering that you and I can't even define. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know what he's doing. And so we glorify God as we trust him in the midst of the question. Can I tell you something? Job got something better than answers. We've we've touched on that, but let's go to it now. Do you know that in chapter 38... Get your brain wrapped around this. Without the promises, without the covenants, without the temple, without the synagogue, without the prophets, without the priests, God shows up and speaks to Job. What's better than answers? God. God is better than answers. Having him is better than having his reasoning. Knowing he is your friend is better than three friends who show up and cloud the council. Loving him and treasuring him is better than life. Walking with him is better than understanding what he's, where he's going to lead you. He's the shepherd that leads you through dark valleys. You don't know where he's going next, but you better stick with him because he's going to lead you beside still waters and, and feed you grass going to feed your soul. He's going to take care of you and keep your enemies at bay because he's the good shepherd of your soul. Life is not futile when there are not discernible answers to your question. Sometimes it's a very good place for God to bring you to a place where you can finally say, I don't know why. but I know God, and that's enough. Let's stand to be this morning. Father, we don't always know why. And our lives are full of bad counsel, and sometimes we are the ones, in fact, often, we're the ones given the bad counsel. Help uh, each one of us in a place of friendship today to not dime store theology, 
without really thinking about it, offer the what-ifs and maybes about what you could be doing and help each one of us to come to a place where you say, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know if this is a paragraph or a chapter or a book or an epic. I don't know. But having God is enough. Praise your name. You came close to Job. Lord, none of us would read Job if he knew why. He wouldn't care. He knew why. He knew how long. He got his questions answered. All of us could endure if we knew that. We don't know. So teach us, Lord, to trust the one we know. Take us by the hand and help us, we pray in Jesus' name.